No subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second half of our dual episode, season eight finale. A couple nights ago, Adam Davies and Lori Simmons tore the house down on the first half. Tonight, we're going to go even further into the strange and unusual and, quite frankly, unsettling. Our guest tonight, I've been a fan of his since way back in March of 2012 when I first heard him talking about this issue on Coast to Coast. I was telling him before we started the show, I happened to be working that night and listening to the show and was just absolutely riveted by his material and have followed his stuff ever since. And he is one of the most requested guests we've had in quite some time. I get emails all the time from people who want to hear him on BOA Audio, and I wanted to have him on the show for ever myself. And quite frankly, a big part of that delay is just how intimidating this research is. Not only just the sheer massive amount of content that he's produced on this mystery, but the, as I said, unsettling nature of it all. David Pilates, welcome to BOA Audio. Thank you so much, sir, for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for the invite, Tim. Normally I, I bestow a whole bunch of even more platitudes on the guests, but we only got you for an hour, and I, sque- and I want to squeeze as much out of you as possible here because this story is something else. First of all, to start out, we like to give folks a little bio background on the guest. Tell people who is David Pilates and how did you find out about what we'll, I guess we'll call the missing 411 phenomenon. Well, earlier in life, I spent 20 years as a police officer in California. I then went on and uh, worked in technology, primarily in HR. In the last three years, I was in business development. Uh, I traveled around the world doing business development for a company out of Canada. Um, I kind of got back into the swing of investigations again when I got back home. The uh, a couple of people that did a uh, that were part of a startup company had some interesting stories about the woods, and they had me do some work on that form at the beginning. Um, as would have it, I was at a national park one day, and a couple of park workers were following me around. At the end of the day, I went back to my lodge and was kind of kicking back and got a knock on the door and two guys in plain clothes were there and they said they were National Park Service Rangers and they wanted to talk to me. They went on to tell a story that they had worked at several parks over the last 15 years and that they had kind of come together and compared notes and they figured out that there were an abnormal amount of missing people. And they believed that at the front end, that first seven to ten days, there was a lot of publicity and there was a lot of people looking for someone. And then at the uh, tail end of it, it t- it just went away. There were no more investigations. There were no more searches, and essentially there was no more action on the case. 
and they believed that uh, it was it was an abnormal number of missing people, and they disappeared in unusual locations. Mm. And an abnormal abnormal number were never found. And they said, you know, someone needs to look into this. And they said, Dave, we know who you are, we know your background, and you've done some good work before, so we want to kind of lay it on you. And that's kind of how it started. And it's turned into something just absolutely breathtaking, to be honest with you. Uh, somebody was asking me, uh, Jeff Ritzman, my good friend, I was on his show uh, over the summer, and he asked me who, of the guests I've had, whose stuff has really blown me away. And I was like, well, you know, I don't like to pick, you know, favorite guests because it's like picking favorite kids. But I'm like, one guy I really want to talk to is David Pilates. His stuff is outstanding, and I can't wait to talk to him. And let's do the plugs here to make sure folks know what we're talking about. Missing 411, Western United States, that was the first book. Missing 411, Eastern United States, that's the follow-up then. Missing 411, North America and beyond. And then the most recent one here, Missing 411, The Devils in the Details. That's the one that I read uh, leading up to tonight. And, of course, the website is canammissing.com. We got all that right, right? That's correct. And just this is something I like to do. I kind of joked about it on a previous episode. Folks, this is, this is the sound of uh, Missing 411, The Devils in the Details, just hitting my desk right now. This thing's massive. This thing is like, look at it, folks. It's huge, and uh, all of the books are like that. So it's, it's. I don't know how you, you kind of teased this uh, when we were talking beforehand, uh, setting up the interview. I don't know how you find the time to compile these these cases. They just must be pouring in on you at this point. You know, uh, in the last couple years, it seems as though there has been an escalation of cases that match the profile we're looking at, and that is that is of concern. But I think the awareness of people out there to what we're doing and what we're looking for has assisted in kind of vetting the cases that are out there and getting the ones to us that really have meaning to the to the incident we're working. So it's hard to tell if there's been an increase in number or there's just more awareness at this point. Right, right. Well, also, it's like you could be getting cases from the 80s and stuff like that, too. It's like this the thing spans quite the field of time. Now, to start things out, I don't. I hate to like put you on the spot right to start, but it was in the introduction of the book, and it sort of piqued my interest. And you say, you know, that you don't really like to uh, sort of go to any conclusion just yet about what this is all about, and and people do appreciate that, and I appreciate that too, because you leave it up to people to try and figure out on their own. But then you kind of tease here, and you say the field of suspects is narrowing. So. Just just to nudge you a little bit, what can you tell me about that sentence? Can you give me a little more information? You know, how big is this field or, or anything, anything, because I'm so, I'm just so perplexed by this mystery, and, 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 and you've clearly looked at it a thousand times more than I have. So the field of suspects is narrowing. What, is that, what does that mean? Well, I think that the facts that are being accumulated over time tend to point it, the arrow starts to get a little finer, and I, I think at the beginning when you're looking at 500 cases, you know, maybe you have a, a, a very wide open view, and as you get down and, you know, you look at four or 5,000 cases, that field of focus starts to narrow a little bit. As an example, in, in this latest book, you know, I, I talked about some disappearances on the water, mm-hmm. and... At the beginning, there was a mass amount of people that said, oh, you know, Politis, he's writing these books because he thinks a cryptid did it, and, you know, we know what he's doing. And I'm smart enough to realize that it may take 10,000 cases to look at to really finalize 
who the culprit is. Mm. And to come out and say, oh, yeah, I know what this is, uh, later on down the line, if someone is disproven, then you lose a lot of credibility. Even though at times I'm pushed to, to say, okay, you've got to have an idea, the reality of it is I'm not going to be an idiot, and I'm not going to step up and say something that I'm not absolutely sure about. Right, right, right. Absolutely, exactly. Now, it seemed to me, I kind of came out of this, and as I said, uh, I've only read The Devil's in the Details. I have North America and Beyond, and I've read parts of that. So I'm not, obviously, I'm not nearly as versed in this as you are. So if I ask questions sometimes that you think uh, need clarification, definitely please light, uh, enlighten me to that. Um, it seemed like, just from this book, it seemed like we have two distinct sort of types of incidents. You've got the children who are sometimes found, and the adults who are almost never found. It feels like maybe... Maybe we're – I think it's safe to say that we're dealing with, like, multiple phenomena here that are behind these disappearances. I don't think it's I, – I, part of me just doesn't think that we can classify all these things or even, you know, like a majority of them to one specific thing. It feels like there may be multiple strange things happening, multiple possible criminal things too, obviously not just paranormal, um, but different sort of uh, suspects, if you will, behind all of this. So I think you have to keep a real broad perspective, and we came out – this last year, we produced a map of the United States and southern Canada that shows the 52 clusters of disappearances. And if you really study that map, there's a couple things that, that, are, that come to focus quickly. In the last book, we came out with a series of clusters around the Great Lakes that we never knew about before. So there's a focus on water. If you look at all of the clusters up and down the west coast of the U.S., they're all close to water. If you look at the clusters all up and down the East Coast, they're all close to water. But let, yet you look right down the middle of the United States, the furthest point from water, and there's none. Yeah. There's like a band right down the middle of the U.S. where there's hardly anything. Yeah, I'm looking at the map right now. We got it uh, on the thing. Yeah, that is that is creepy. And you know something? I didn't even notice it until you pointed it out. But now, <laughs> now I'm... Now I'm really creeped out, and sort of in like uh, Nevada, where it's the, the high desert, the sort of deserty area. Exactly. So, but uh, then again, you, you start up in Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and you go down to the the mountains in New Mexico, and right through that, you have to acknowledge that there's some relationship to big mountains and water, and that's kind of what what it comes down to, because that string of disappearances up the East Coast almost follows the Appalachian Trail going from south to north. Yeah. Oh, this is some spooky stuff. Now, like I said, uh, we, we, we got you in a small window here. I feel like this is going to be the fastest Banal of America audio episode <laughs> I've ever done because I'm so into this. And uh, leading into this, you asked me to pick some cases to talk about uh, that stood out to me in the book. And so, uh, you know, I know you do a lot of work looking at these leading into the show, so I don't want to, like, jump in a whole bunch of stuff and then go, oh, we never talked about the cases because then you're going to be like, well, what did I waste my Wednesday afternoon for, Tim, you, you clown? <laughs> so, <laughs> so. I got one question before we get into the cases, actually, because this is perfect to sort of lead into it from what we've been talking about so far. And that is also in the intro, you say uh, that thanks to a diligent reader, and uh, we should probably mention who it is, but I don't have it in front of me, but thanks to a diligent reader of the Missing 401 stuff, you guys have started to or in the process of putting together a database. Um, and so what's the status of that, and is this ever going to be made uh, available to the public? Because it's the kind of thing I feel like I could spend about three days myself just digging into. So a engineer from Microsoft got an interest. She worked on it night and day, and she put it together 
And I don't think anything on that database would be revealing to the public because everything at the back of the books is on the database. Mm. The, the list of the missing, the names, the ages, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that there would be a lot gleaned from that. Uh, you buy the books, you're going to find the same thing at the back of the book. I've had a lot of people say, yeah, you know, we pull those pages out at the back of the book and we post them on the wall and we look at them. Hey, perfect. I wish everyone would do that. Right, right. Because I, I think there is something there. The uh, the names, the ages, the graphs in the back of the book that you have, the devil's in the detail, the distances people travel, especially kids, seems obscene and doesn't seem possible. Mm. Yeah, I guess the only reason why I'm asking is because like, uh, with, with some kind of computerized database, then at least you can run various types of searches on it and stuff. If you, if you only have it in the paper form, it's hard to like... Because uh, like what, what, what struck out to me was, I don't know if you noticed this, maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree, but it seemed like... Uh, it seemed like a lot of these cases seemed to take place sort of in the first five days of the month or the last five days of the month. It, it seemed to me that that stood out, or maybe I was just sort of projecting a pattern that, that, that I imagined. But that's the kind of thing where I was like, well, if there was a database, I could maybe do a search on that instead of having to go through and count. Uh, I don't see that happening anytime soon, Tim. All right. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I respect your honesty. I like it. I like it. Um Okay, so the, the first case I, I mentioned to you in the email leading into this was the Haley Zega case. It's from 42901 in uh, Newton County, Arkansas. She's age six. Uh, I, I, won't, I won't play the spoiler here, so I guess just uh, enlighten us to this story, and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll follow up a little bit afterwards uh, after you've told us it. So this is probably the one case where mainstream media pulled it, showed some interest, and it was on a Dateline NBC segment years ago. Happened uh, April 29, 2001, about 11.30 in the morning. Haley Zega, six years old. She's with her grandparents. Before we go further, as you read my books, you'll notice that an abnormal number of kids disappear when they're with an aunt and uncle or with grandparents. Can't put it together yet, but it's, it's really an abnormal number of, of kids. And uh, they're hiking, and they're in the Buffalo Wilderness, kind of southeast of Harrison, Arkansas, going down the trail, just having a good time, and Haley sees a sign and says, oh, let's waterfall this direction. She wants to go to the waterfall. The, parent, the grandparents say, no, let's just kind of keep moseying along the trail. Somehow or another, and this is the way it happens all the time, the grandparents lost sight of her. They start yelling for her, searching for her, walking up and down the trail, screaming for her. They hear nothing. They get no response. So they eventually go back to the trailhead. They call the Newton County Sheriff. They respond out, and right away they fire up a big response. Sheriffs, search and rescue teams, helicopters, National Guard, fire fire departments, they pull everything. Eight bloodhound teams come out, and none of them find anything. And the FLIR in the helicopter is up for three days. They see nothing that could match a person out there. Well, 51 hours after she disappears, she's found two miles from the point the grandparents last saw her, She's sitting in a brook with her feet in the water, and she's described as having scratches up and down her body. A couple things important about this. Many, many people are found in or near a creek, alive and deceased, and many, many of these kids have scratches up and down their body. Now, she eventually gets taken to a hospital. She's in really good condition, 
And she explains to her parents when they ask her what happened and what did she do and how did she get away or why didn't she respond. She says on that first night she slept on a bluff, meaning on the top of this mountain. And that puzzled the searchers because helicopter never picked her up sleeping up there. Second night she slept in a cave. And then she just kind of throws it in. She goes, well, and along the way I kind of had some help. Parents go, what do you mean you had some help? And she said, well, this other girl came along and kind of helped me up and down the boulder field and kind of walk around. And they said, really? And she said, yeah, it was a little girl about my age named Alicia. And they thought, well, maybe she's dreaming this up just to have a companion. But uh, the sheriff went back and did some research. And 23 years prior to Haley disappearing, another girl that same age disappeared in the area and believe it or not, her name wasn't Alicia, but it was Alana. And uh, just the innocence that Haley had and the truthfulness that everyone felt that she gave this story, they thought, wow, in her mind it must have at least happened, and the coincidence is there. Mm. Well, that's that's what really stood out to me in uh, a couple of these cases that I brought up to you uh, leading into all this, because it's like when we get any sort of insights from the people who managed to survive this or who go through the incident and, and try to communicate in the midst of it, which we'll get to a couple in a moment, uh, those those seem to stand out to me because that's the closest we might get to a glimpse of all this. Uh, now, that she was six in 2001, and I know later in the book, I think it was, uh, it's, uh, I have in the notes here, Joan Threese. I might have the, mis- uh, might have the last name misspelled, but it's uh, the question is, has anyone tried to reach out to these folks? Because there's a handful of people like this. The little girl, uh, this Joan Threes that happened to, you know, where, where people reach out to them after they've made it back uh, to find out if they can, if they can re- recollect any more information, you know, down the line. So kids, this is a traumatic experience. And even for adults, when they're found, it's traumatic. And when you start researching an area... You don't want to step in the same puddles that people before you have in the same landmines and go through the same aggravation and things that people before you have gone through. So smart researchers will go to groups in that arena that they're interested in and question them about what are the pros and cons of doing this, what should I avoid, what should I do, what should I not do. So you don't learn from their mistakes. You're not just replicating the same thing. Right. We went to some missing persons groups, explained what we were interested in doing, asked for direction. One of the things they said was, is if you're going to write a book about the incident, I wouldn't go out and proactively contact the victims because many of them will think that they're victimized a second time by you writing a story about their incident. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's different if they approach us, and that's happened, but we won't proactively contact them. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. That was a concern of mine in the uh, in the general idea of that, because uh, it's like, why would you, why you know, leave me alone is probably the reaction that you might get. But it's you hope that uh, there's some kind of recollection that you could find out later. Now, you also say in the book, if you're ever able to find photos of these kids after they've been found, their eyes are all they they seem agog. Um, but I didn't see any in the book. Are there any, are they in the other books or like have you seen these photos and describe them a little bit? Because uh, that sounded kind of really creepy. There are photos in other books of the kids, and many of them that we've seen are in newspapers and are copyrighted, and we can't replicate them. 
But the ones we did replicate, just imagine the kid's eyes being as open as they could be open and this sort of blank stare that they have looking out. It's yeah. it's definitely identifiable. Yeah, interesting, interesting. All right. Um, now, the next case uh, is along the same lines. I'm kind of skipping uh, amongst the ones that I sent to you, and that's the Cullen Finnerty one. It's actually one of the highlighted cases in the book. It's uh, 5-26-2013 from Weber Township, Michigan. Uh, and, again, it's another case where – we get a glimpse into whatever is unfolding in this mystery uh, window here, a, a brief glimpse, but it's fascinating and really compelling. So, so share this story, please. So I, I think this is a, a very revealing case for a multitude of reasons, is you have a victim that's communicating with his wife while the incident is unveiled. And Cullen, uh, 6'2", 240 pounds, quarterback in college football, Played for Grand Valley State, set a 28-0 record. He was probably a stud amongst all studs as far as a quarterback. He played a full game with a broken collarbone one time. He told his linemen at one point one early in his career, uh, they they were beaten on one of the opposing players who came through and hit Colin. And Colin said, hey, don't worry about it. Let him hit me. It won't hurt me. And he goes, I like him to hit me. And his, <laughs> his coach thought he was nuts. But that's how tough the guy was. Uh, in 2007, he signed with the Baltimore Ravens, briefly played for the Broncos. Uh, he ended up marrying a uh, volleyball player from his school, Jennifer. They have a couple kids. Well, on Memorial Day weekend 2013, his wife's family decided they wanted to go near the Baldwin River in this area of Weber Township in Michigan. Right away when I saw this name, it keyed on me because I've written stories about two other disappearances in this same area during the last 90 years that are some of the most unusual disappearances you can think of. And therein lies the reason I think that we study history is because if a certain area has a replication of disappearances on the strange side, you kind of put that under some radar. Well, Cullen uh, was with his wife, his kids. They were staying in a rented cabin on a lake. Had a great three days. It was a Memorial Day weekend. And on the last day, May 26th, late in the afternoon, Colin said to the family, hey, I had such a good time, I just want to go one more time down the river fishing. And they said, great, fine. So a little after 8 o'clock, the family dropped him off in his boat on the river. And 45 minutes after they drop him off, his wife receives a call from him, and she described it as a frantic call, saying that he was being followed by one or two people. They were 20 feet behind him. He tried to talk to him, but they wouldn't talk to him. And he says, he's. Get, this is the part that's pretty baffling. He says, I'm getting out of the river, and I'm taking off my clothes, and the phone hung up. Now, what's key to this is that many, many of the incidents I've written about, the people are found missing clothes. Now, why would Cullen, if he's being followed by somebody, take the time to remove his clothes? Yeah. So... What he was wearing, he was he was wearing fishing waders, suspenders, and a long sleeve shirt. And uh, they, his wife received other calls, like eight or nine minutes later, still being followed, felt nervous, got to go, out of breath, and anxious. And again, all very strange because there wasn't a lot there. This area is a really, really thick wooded area. Uh, the river's not huge, just big enough to get a small raft in it. Well, the last time Jennifer talks to him, she says, hey, Colin, take a second. Give me the coordinates off your iPhone so we know where you're at. And he rattles them off. 
Well, that was the last time that they heard of him, and he, he just stopped calling. They showed up at the point where he was supposed to come out. He wasn't there, and they called the sheriff. Now, this is a small rural county, but these guys these guys were on it, and they did the right thing. First deputy there called the cell phone provider and said, hey, ping the phone and give me the coordinates of where those pings come back to. And this is the part that's very, very revealing. During that time and in the short time that they were pinging the phone, they got four locations 4.37 miles apart from each other, which would be essentially impossible under conventional thinking because to get to the locations where the phone was pinged, he would have had to have crossed three or four streets, meaning it would have been impossible for him to be lost. And at about 13 minutes past midnight, the family found his boat. One oar was missing out of the boat. And that was May 27th, real early in the morning. The day, May 27th, was a very rainy day, cloudy skies. Again, pertinent to what we write about, because bad weather is involved in the majority of these disappearances, either as they occur or immediately after. 100 volunteers, dogs, deputies, they did everything they could they find, to find them. They searched and many of the searchers and the relatives couldn't believe he'd be lost because this area was not an easy place to get lost in. It's very flat. Again, a lot of streets. There's a city right nearby. Very strange. And there was talk that some people thought Cullen must have been abducted. Now, what's funny about Coach over at Grand Valley State said, anybody taking on Cullen Finnerty would have to be insane because that's not going to happen. They said there's no way someone's going to take him. He'll, he'd take on an army. Yeah. Well, on uh, May 28th, uh, at about 8 p.m., Colin was found face down. Another important point in our descriptions of people that are found, they're found face down. Unusual. Um, his arm, one arm was under him, one arm was extended. And interesting to me is when I looked at the crime scene photos, he was wearing suspenders that were crossed on his back, and the suspenders were turned several times. And anybody who's a fisherman knows you would never wear your suspenders like that. It's uncomfortable. And it almost looked like somebody had grabbed him, to me, from the suspenders to, to cause this turning motion on the suspender. It was strange. Yeah. Well, in the case folder, there was there was a lot of, a lot of things. Most of the things I just told you here, the New York Times wrote a giant article about this. It went to Kent County pathologists, and they said that there were no obvious signs of death. There were some unusual things about what they found, but nothing that pointed to a direct cause of death. Then, i, I got to respect these guys, because they then sent his body to Boston University's medical team for secondary look at what caused his death. And they again stated that they couldn't find a definitive cause. There was, a, there was some interesting things that wouldn't really relate to him being missing, but they said he didn't have a heart attack and they couldn't figure out exactly why. Jeez. Again, an important part because many of the people that are found, doctors say they can't figure out why they died. Now, the important points in this study is how he got from his boat to where his body was found to where the cell phones were being pinged. Right, right. And logistically, logically, it couldn't have happened that way unless there's something happening that we completely don't understand. 
I think we've <laughs> David. I think we've established through the through the through the series of four books that we there is something here that we completely do not understand going on. That that, that is why so many people are riveted by this phenomenon. It is uh, you know I'm I'm sitting here. There's a part of me, and I'm sure you. Well, you're you're you know you used to be a detective. I mean, I'm sure you. This is kind of second nature to you. As part of me, as I'm reading these cases, I'm sort of like throwing out these scenarios in my mind. Well, maybe it was this. Maybe it was that. Maybe you know. I don't want to do that to you because it's like you, you know we don't know the answer to these questions. It's it's baffling that with that case we have sort of a timeline of of events through the phone pings. And and uh, you know the boat being found, the body being found. It's it's. Uh, I don't really know what to make of that one at all. Well, it is interesting that he tells his wife that he's being followed right. by by two guys. That's what he says, and he he says he he yells at them, but they don't respond. So, you know, in in my mind, I tend to think, well, what could have been following him that. You know, it was dark out. It was very dark at that point. And maybe he mis- misinterpreted something for being two guys. Or maybe there's something unusual going on out there and we don't get it. Right, right. The, the nature of the pings and the boat and the body, is it like physically impossible for him to have to have made this journey uh, without some kind of, uh, like on foot, essentially? Yes. Okay. See, then we get, yeah. So then we're not talking about, like, he went crazy and started running around. It's like, no, folks, that, that's not possible. So, you know, I'm just completely baffled. Um, I want to stay on the, on, the, on the path of strange phone calls and also uh, additional sort of strange patterns that seem to be happening in these cases. And, and two of those things come together here in the Megumi Yamamoto case from June 9, 2011, Mount Baldy, New Mexico, uh, not only are there phone calls during this disappearance and a whole series of strange, um, you know, uh, malfunctions, let's say, on the 911 call system, which makes it even more bizarre and troubling, but then also a, 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 a helicopter crash, which ties into a whole series of patterns involving uh, aircraft crashes during these disappearances. So, so two. Two strange uh, patterns come together here on the Megumi Yamamoto case. So let's let's hear about that one, David. So Megumi is a grad student at University of New Mexico in physics. Uh, she's a nanotechnology expert trying to uh, work on that angle and that in optics. She's 26 years old, a graduate of the University of California at Long Beach. She is a Japanese national going to school here. Uh, she had a boyfriend, Paul Harrington, and her and Paul went camping, and they went into the Pecos Wilderness. So another one of those locations where I've written about two other cases where people disappeared under highly unusual circumstances. So this, this one really caught my interest right away. So they went up into the wilderness. They're hiking in a trail. And a wilderness means that you can't bring any cars, bikes. You can only bring a horse into it you got to travel on foot or on horseback. Her and Paul were hiking along, and again, somehow, some way, they got separated. Well, Megumi was smart. She she had her cell phone with her, and after a little bit of, of hiking and trying to find her way out, she couldn't. She calls 911. And it goes into the local sheriff's department, and they say, she says, hey, I'm lost somewhere in the Pecos wilderness, and I need help. 
And they said, okay, well, you need to call back on 911. And she goes, I did call in on 911. And they go, well, if you call in on 911, we'll be able to triangulate your position and, and come, have people come rescue you. No, no, I did call on 911. Okay, hang up and call again on 911 then. She did this seven times. Seven times the call got redirected to a non-emergency line, meaning that the sheriff's department couldn't triangulate and couldn't find her. This had never happened before in the sheriff's department history and hasn't happened since. The eighth time she calls, it goes through to 911, and they triangulate it, and they start sending search and rescue people out. Now, you talk about a coincidence of bad, I don't know what you'd call it, just bad luck. Yeah. There, there's nothing more that could have gone wrong on this, and it started with the calls. That followed up. Search and rescue teams went out, and right away the weather starts to get bad. It clouds in and it starts to snow. Unbelievably, some of the search and rescue guys refused to even go out on their assignments because the weather was so bad. Finally, they find a couple guys who say, okay, go out. And right away, way out in the wilderness, they triangulate with GPS and they find her. So they call for a state police helicopter to come in and uh, rescue her. Well, now they have to go to the feds, and they have to get approval to land a helicopter in the wilderness in an emergency, if you can believe this. So that delayed them some more, but they get the approval. New Mexico State Police send out a helicopter, Sergeant Sergeant Andy Tingwall, and uh, spotter is Officer Wes Cox fly out. And they're very high up. They're flying into the area. He lands on one skid. Megumi gets in. As the helicopter's taking off, some people say there was a gust of wind. Some people say there was nothing. The helicopter rotates slightly. It hits a tree, and it crashes 800 feet down the side of Mount Baldy. It kills Megumi. It kills the pilot, and the spotter lives. And if if you look at this incident and you say, okay, what are the commonalities here with what we've known in the past? Five physics, five physicists or physicist majors in school I've written about who have disappeared momentarily or permanently in the wilderness or never came out of the wilderness. There's five crashes involving aircraft in conjunction with cases I've written about. And if you think about this case specifically, I don't know of one case where so many things went wrong. And there was, I thought about it later on and I was writing up the, the incident. And I thought, you know what? There was no way she was going to get out of there alive. Yeah, it's it's like almost it makes you wonder if it's like that movie uh, where all the all the people uh, you know get away from the plane crash and then they die in different ways right away. It's like is she just destiny or what? It's really uh, it's really spooky stuff. We gotta spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens! What kind of radio show is this? The connection here between the Finnerty case and the Megumi case is the cell phones. Now, clearly, it's almost impossible to speculate on the future, but let's hope, there's hope, I guess you could say, that with the proliferation of cell phones, we may be able to get some new sliver of data or information surrounding future cases that unfold uh, you know, within this, within this phenomenon, because that, that provides us, hopefully, with some kind of anger point, even if it's as bizarre as the Finnerty case, was it's still something to to look at, right? True, but the reality of it is is that many of the cases involving the people that we write about, 
the people don't have their cell phone on or they don't have a cell phone with them. So it's those two cases are two of the very, very rare where the phone was activated and it was being used. Yeah. It, it It's so rare to find a case where the phone was on, I, I can't even tell you. It's almost as though there's some kind of sixth sense out there that understands that these people don't have a communication device working. Yeah. Well, I don't want to, like, put words in your mouth or thoughts in your head or anything, but um, but I guess on a technical level, just, just to... It, you know the old stories like oh the UFO was over my car on the car everything shut down would that kick would that would that sort of uh, qualify for kicking kicking off the cell phone so pe- they couldn't get to it? Well, I guess it, it, in some ways that would that would drain the battery of the cell phone. Uh, there's a couple cases on our website. We did three videos about incidents of people who have disappeared, and we went to the locations, and one of them involves a physician. Well, this guy disappeared on a trail with his friends in uh, in the middle of winter. And he not only had a cell phone, he had a cell phone backup battery. And when they found him eventually, he was dead from a head injury, uh, they put the cell phone battery in the cell phone. The cell phone worked, and it worked at the location where they found his body. So a lot of times the cell phone just isn't activated and, and thus can't be used. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's the that's that's a that's the strange part. That's what makes it weird. It's not like uh, it's not like they're not turning it on or something like that. It's like somehow it's not on, uh, right? For reasons we don't quite know yet. Um, well, marching through the cases here, Christopher Harvey, July eleventh, nineteen eighty four, Pagosa Springs, Colorado. This was really interesting because it kind of gives folks a glimpse into the challenges that you face. Um, you know, also to kind of connect that to the cell phone parts, like. With the work that you do, you're really at the mercy of of the local police and what they collect and that kind of information after the fact. So it's like if they if they don't go for the cell phone information, you know, that's you're out of luck, right? I mean, you can't really do much with with that. So so talk about you know that that kind of connects to the Christopher Harvey case and how you were really stonewalled in a really mysterious fashion by by folks uh, as you looked into it. So in Colorado, there's a law very similar to the Freedom of Information Act, where local jurisdictions have to give up governmental reports. And it doesn't say they they can, it says that they must. And Chris Harvey disappeared in July 11th, 84, about 3.30 in Pagosa Springs, very mountainous area. He and his family were from Andrews, Texas, and they vacationed at their summer home up here in Pagosa. High elevation, very, very rural there's a small area of cabins up there. Well, on that afternoon, Chris leaves his his folks' house, and he's just going down the road to see some friends at another house. And as in many, many cases that I write about, the person disappears with a canine. So Chris is walking down this dirt road with his dog. He goes to his friend's house. He meets with them. They talk about going to band camp in a few weeks, blah, blah, blah. And he leaves with the thinking from these other people that he's walking back to his house but he never arrives. And that's 3.30, 4 o'clock time in the afternoon is probably a prime time to disappear under the profile we've established. Well, by 11 o'clock, everyone's looking for Chris. They finally call the Archuleta County Sheriff. It's a very strange scenario. Pagosa Springs is in a really odd place in Hinsdale County, Colorado. Hinsdale County contracted with Archuleta County because they have better access to this area to do the patrol. Archuleta County goes out, they do the initial report, 
And they don't do anything until noon the next day, even though a 14-year-old kid's missing. Noon the next day, they start searching. And it's a very short search. And they, they called for a helicopter from Fort Carson. Rain starts to fall. Bloodhounds can't find a scent. It's a typical thing I write about all the time. There's failure after failure. Hmm. And a few days after this, Archuleta says, hey, we've had enough. We've got to give this back to Hinsdale County. They give it to Hinsdale County, and they come in, and they search for a couple days, and they find nothing. One of the Hinsdale sheriffs says that there's a 95% chance Chris is not in the county. That was the quote. So by July 22nd, all searches had stopped. It's done. They can't figure out where he is, and they give up. The sheriff... uh, we sent, I sent a freedom of, I sent a, an informational request on this case since it's almost 30 years old. And the sheriff says, yeah, sure, we'll get that to you. And it's a small county. His admin says, sure, sure. I wait three weeks. I don't hear anything. I send the sheriff an email. He says, yeah, you know, we, we had a difficult time locating it. I'm going to send the undersheriff off to our location off-site where we keep old reports. Hmm. Okay. Two weeks, three weeks later, I don't hear anything. I write him again. He says, well, we've had fires in the county, <laughs> and we can't get somebody to look for the report right now, but we'll look for it. Two, three weeks go by. I send another note, this time to the admin, saying, yeah, if you have the report, I'll come down and copy it in your presence just to save time. Even though it's a five-hour drive, I'll do it. She says, no, 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 we'll copy it for you. You know, It'll just take some time. About a month after that, I send another – and in the – Emails are very polite. I have them all, and information's flowing back and forth. Month after that, I get an email from an attorney in Denver saying he represents Hinsdale County and the sheriff and ordering me not to talk to the sheriff anymore and to deal directly with him, but they aren't going to release the report. I ask why, and the attorney says, well, they're going to have a cold case unit look at this case, and they're going to reinvestigate it. Now, here's the issue with that. They didn't have enough people to find the report, and they <laughs> sent the number two person in the county, the undersheriff, to go to an off-site location to search for the box that the reports were in. And now they say that they're going to have a cold case unit look at this? Come on. Yeah. So you, it's not possible, you, you don't suspect that uh, that it wasn't something like they went and got the file and then it sparked their interest and they were like, we need to look at this again? Because it is such a mysterious and bizarre case. I mean, is that possible? Or you think it's more that they're trying to cover their, cover something, cover their tracks, cover, uh, you know, cover cover whatever this mystery, the source of it is, or, or God knows what? Well, and if that was the case... If they had the manpower, the sheriff said in emails that they were so low in manpower they could barely patrol their county. Yeah. And if that was the case that he was going to find a cold case group to work it, why just why just not email that to me and tell me why send it mm. to some offsite contract attorney? Right, right. Definitely, definitely, uh, definitely reeks of some kind of intimidation attempt too. You know, where it's like he's ordering you. It's like what gives him the right to to order you about it. You can't control who I'm going to email. If I want to email the sheriff, yeah. I'll email the sheriff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Was there any is there any follow up beyond that? Like, is there anything else you can really do about that now at this point, or are you just kind of like SOL? Well, I, under the ideal conditions, an attorney would take him to court and uh, force him for disclosure. 
that that costs a lot of money. Right. Exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's you know it's difficult uh, to undertake that. You, we've already well, you haven't mentioned it here on the show, but I've heard it before that uh, they're already trying to squeeze you like crazy on these Freedom of Information Act stuff. So it's like you're you're getting stonewalled big time in a lot of places uh, looking into this case, these cases. Excuse me. Uh, well, the National Park Service, they, you know, they want a million four for all of their reports. They want thirty-eight thousand for reports of missing people from Yosemite. They want seventy-one hundred dollars just to review a report before they'll release it to me. After a while, the public is smart. They realize that hey, this is just all obstruction and trying to keep the information from us. Yeah. Do you think that that's because of uh, they want to protect their own negligence in the whole thing, uh, and they don't want to raise awareness too about all this? I mean, I'm sure that like you. Up until you'd started doing this stuff, I, I, this was not, you know, no one was talking about this issue. That's what makes it so exciting to me. I mean, I've been looking at strange and unusual stuff for almost 15 years now, and to see this whole thing bloom in the last two and a half, three years, it's it's just absolutely, I mean, hats off to you, man. Kudos. I've talked to a lot of folks. Some folks are rehashing the same stuff over and over again. You've brought something massive to the table that I just never, ever could have imagined. So, I mean, kudos to you. But have you ever sort of felt like, you know, it, it, maybe you've, you've stumbled into something way bigger than than uh, than you thought at the start? Well, we were talking about George Knapp before the show started, and uh, George is a good friend. And he told me one time, he said, you know, Dave, I think he had read the first three books, and he hadn't read the last one yet. And he said, you know, you're going to find out that this is going to be a lot bigger than you think. He says, because I know how much info you've gotten so far. And he goes, just based on the profile you're you're expressing right now, he goes, this is going to just bloom into something that's huge. And I think he's right. As time goes on, you, and as information is available in certain countries, you can see the same things happening at these different locations. And that's another reason why I haven't come right out and said, you know, hey, what's the answer to this? Because mm. as time goes on, it just continues to blossom all over the world. Right, right. And it shades the whole story. It changes the whole thing. So Absolutely. You know. Um, to wrap up the cases that I sent to you uh, before the show, Keith Reinhardt, that's August 7th, 1988, Silver Plume, Colorado. He's aged 49. Very strange story. You wonder if it's history repeating itself. Or, uh, or or what? Because this guy, talk about people getting in over their head and looking into something that uh, maybe they shouldn't have. It seems like that may be the case with Keith Reinhardt, but we don't know. That's really the mystery of it all. So tell folks about Keith Reinhardt. Yeah, Keith was a, a pretty big-time sports writer for the Chicago Daily Herald. Uh, this was back in the mid-1980s. And he was married for two years to a woman named Carolyn and for some reason, Keith decided he had a lifelong friend that was living in Silver Plume, Colorado. It's kind of on Highway 70 on your way to Vail, just uh, west of Denver. Very small rural community, right in a mining area. And he had a friend that owned a uh, kind of a large building there. And he told his wife that uh, he was going to try to go out and establish an antique business and write a novel and something he'd always wanted to do. And he said, you know, just give me some time, and you come out and visit during the summer, and we'll kind of make this happen. And he went out there, and his friend's name was Ted Parker. And Ted owned a building, had a small cafe in it during the summer months. Keith went out there, opened the antique business, and right away found out that the antique business wasn't going to do too well in Silver Plume. And 
Silver Plume would remind you of a, a really small city that's kind of wrapped in the 1930s or 40s. Most of the town has dirt roads. It's it's really kind of a quaint little place, but a little, little unusual. And uh, he rented this storefront. After he moved in, he found that the storefront he was renting and the room he was renting is the same room that he was that had been rented to another guy who had disappeared just before he arrived. And uh, this town, 140 people, about 9,000 feet in elevation, Keith learned that this uh, man named Tom Young had disappeared months earlier. This was in Clear Creek County, Colorado. And Ted kind of told him some things about Tom, and Keith found it unusual and started to look into it on his own. And he he was he was interested in writing a piece about it. Well, uh, in that early August time frame of '88, his wife Carolyn was set to come out on August 11th for a visit. And on August 7th, Keith told some friends that he was going to hike a mountain right nearby and asked them if they wanted to go with him. And he he approached two different friends to climb Mount Pendleton, and both of them said, "No, no, you know, we're just going to hang out and." And I think this is important because it, it goes to the point that Keith didn't want to disappear. Keith wasn't suicidal. He was just looking for somebody to climb with and spend the day. But late in that afternoon, he took off, and everyone thought he was going to climb this Mount Pendleton. He had tried to climb it before and never summited. But the truth of the matter is anybody anywhere in Colorado knows you don't leave to climb a mountain at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And people thought they saw him going up this trail at about 4 o'clock. Well, one week prior to Keith disappearing, Tom Young's body was found in an area in this county. And he was found leaning against a tree with his dog on his lap, a bullet hole in his head, a bullet in the dog. And i got to say that this friend of mine and I went up to Clear Creek County, met with this captain there, and he just opened up the file to us and showed us everything. And he said, you know, one of the strange (laughs) things about this case, Dave, is that Somehow or another, somebody destroyed the pistol that we found near Young's body, and we were going to run ballistic tests on it, but we never did. So we know we don't know for sure what really happened. But Some, as far as as somebody far as we, destroyed it at the like when they found it, or somebody destroyed it in the interim. No, somebody apparently inside the sheriff's office inadvertently destroyed the gun. Ah, okay. Sorry to interrupt you there. I just wasn't sure about that. Yeah, no problem. Well, and again, this case happened in 88, so it wouldn't have been unreasonable on a suicide case to get rid of the gun after all those years. Mm. But 28 search and rescue teams were sent up the mountain, airplanes with FLIR, dogs went up. They they didn't have anything. But on August 12th, the, the day the real search started, a Civil Air Patrol plane was up flying around with a pilot and a uh, observer, and it crashed, killed the pilot observer lived this again is one of those five cases where an aircraft crashed in conjunction with a disappearance entire search for keith stopped on august 13th and that was just you know a few days after he disappeared the funny thing was is that in the articles that you read about this many people thought keith just wanted to disappear and it was all staged and but when you look at the facts of the case that couldn't have been it and and to this day, they've never found one piece of evidence that he was ever wanted to disappear or is living in another location. 
Unsolved Mystery did a segment about this case because it was so unusual and there were so many twists and turns in the road. But Keith was never found. Case is still open, still an active missing persons case. Really weird stuff. Really weird. Yeah. Like I said, is it history repeating itself, or did he stumble into something that he shouldn't have been looking into? That's the <laughs> that's the million-dollar question. Now, we're already almost through the hour. I can't believe it. Um, I recently heard you on Coast to Coast at the end of August. Actually, I was working that night, too. Uh, uh, we were talking about how I've, I've, we've crossed paths virtually many times. And uh, you were talking about the petition. So let's make sure people know about this petition. There's going to be a link uh, at the Banal of America page. Um, it's at the petition site, but their URL is just uh, very confusing. So tell people about this. Um, go for it. So on our website, Can-Am Missing, like Canadian-American, canammissing.com, there's a petition there that one of the readers of my books developed, and it's for, it will force the Department of the Interior to list on a website all of the missing people inside of their system and make it accessible to the public. And it's been up for a while. We're trying to get everybody out there to sign it. It costs nothing to sign it, but it would really help the cause to get visibility to these issues. Now, is it is it one of those petitions where once it, it – I'm looking at it now. It looks like it does. Is it one of those that they have to respond to? I think there's like – I don't know if that's through the White House or what. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? I do know. No, this is this is on a website where you can come up with dev, different causes to get hmm. the petition on. We are probably going to take this once we get the numbers we want to a congressman or a senator, sit down with them, and either ask them to approach the Department of the Interior for a response or ask for hearings. Yeah, you should think about getting in touch with uh, – we've had – I said before the show, we've had Kendall Carver on the show a lot, and he's worked really close with uh, Senator Rockefeller down in West Virginia, and they've had like three congressional hearings on these cruise ship issues. So he might be the guy to get in touch with because he sounds like he's uh, sympathetic to the situation for sure with these <laughs> these these massive uh, I, don't, I guess you would call the national parks an industry in a way you know trying to uh, trying to stonewall regulations and stuff like that and it's not even a big regulation like you said in the book it's it's a list of the missing people you'd buy the clipboard and the paper and the and the pen if if they would do it right. Well, I was on another guy's show, and he said, tell them I'll buy them the laptop to keep the data on. Exactly. Exactly. It's unbelievable uh, It's unbelievable that they, that they stand in the way of all this. Now, what's next for you? We've got the four missing 411 books so far, and there's an awesome uh, box set at the website, too, that, uh, that I may just splurge on and then give away my two copies uh, that I already have, because that looks awesome. Um, so we have the four missing 411 books, and of course, as you said, the website is canammissing.com. What's next for you? A fifth book? Uh, I'm afraid this is going to be like, just going to keep, keep going, and I'm, I'm frightened that, <laughs> that it is, but I'm also excited because I do enjoy reading the stuff. So what's next for David Pilates? Well, over time, there's a lot of smart readers out there, and uh, we've had some response from Finland that have really tweaked our interest that... The more people look at this and really get into it, the more eyes that are looking at it, the more different angles can be covered. And like I said at the beginning, the the investigation's evolved and it's taken on different legs and different angles. And I, I could see that in a matter of time, as long as people keep feeding us important information, that's what's going to keep happening. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, well, it's amazing. It really is amazing because, uh, as you said, you started with 500, but once you – how many total do you have now, would you say, roughly? 1,200. Wow. 
that's some scary stuff. <laughs> it's really a, it's really remarkable. Do you ever do you ever feel like we said, you know, you might be getting into something that's much bigger here. Do you ever do you ever I presume because we would have heard about it. You seem like a real no-nonsense guy. Uh I presume you haven't been threatened or anything like that. Do you ever feel nervous looking into this really, really, really unsettling uh, phenomena? Well, probably the worst thing that's happened is that there's sometimes people will go online and make baseless accusations and say, you know, oh, there's nothing here. And it it's obvious that they never read it or they're disinformation people trying to get people away from the topic. But as you know, Tim, you've read some of the books, is that, each one of these incidents, I tie it to the, the source where I got the information. Most of the information is available online, or it's available if you want to look to get a copy of the report from the sheriff or the police where I got it. So I'm not, I'm not trying to hide where I got the information. I'm trying to be transparent. And as long as that's the case, people know that I'm being honest with them. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let me see. We only got like two minutes left. I'm trying to think if there's anything else... Uh here that I could ask you about that that I can get you to talk about in two minutes. Um, well, I guess this 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 piqued my interest, and I have a feeling your answer is going to be no, but uh, I'll ask anyway. The inclement weather during searches. Is it possible that, that inclement weather is caused in a way by the searches? Like, uh, you know, like some kind of thing where there's so many people there that it heats the ground and causes weather disruptions and that kind of thing. Part of me was wondering that because, you know, I'm trying to figure this out, man. You know, I don't think so, and no. um, in the books, I write that the U.S. has the ability to control weather right now, and that's no secret. We've, had, we've been crowd seeding for 40 years, but we've had, we've had other abilities, and the United Nations has said that you can't manipulate weather in wartime. Well, why would they put that in a doctorate on the U.N.? Because different nations have the ability to control weather. Now, one thing I'll end this with... Go ahead. One, one thing I, I always want to end this with is that Many people think that by listening to these interviews, and many have listened to dozens, they think that they can kind of figure this out. But what I tell everybody is that you and I just scratched less than 1% of all the data that we've accumulated in these books. Yeah. And really to look at the graphs we've put together, especially in the last couple of books, it, it gives you a framework for your mind to work through the issue, and that's really what we ask people to do. Let your mind wander and come up with something that's that's you can live with that what you think may be happening here, just like you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really, it's it's an intellectual exercise in a, in, a, in a lot of ways. It's sad too. We can't forget these these people. There are victims involved in all this. There are people's families that are just torn asunder by all this too. It's it's a real, it's a it's a, it's a huge tragedy at work a huge series of tragedies at work with all these folks going missing it's uh you know i think that's what drives a lot of the compelling nature of all this uh david i gotta thank you man uh the, the lady will count us down but it'll keep going just a little bit longer so uh i just uh that way don't worry about the countdown i gotta thank you david so much for coming on the show as i said people have requested your appearance on the show for years ever since that first night on coast to coast when you really uh blew the doors off the place and I have wanted to have you on the show for so long, and I've absolutely loved this conversation. I've found it to be just thrilling, and as I said, got to be the fastest hour we've ever done on this program, hands down. And I really, really hope you come back on the show, because I would love to talk to you more about all this stuff in the future. Please, sir, please, please, I'm begging you. This stuff is so compelling, and I have so much respect for the work you've done. 
thank you for appearing on the BOA Audio season finale, my friend. Thank you, Tim. Let's do it again. Absolutely. All right, man, this is just the plugs part. You can head on out. Thank you, sir, and uh, hopefully, as I said, we can do this again in the future. Absolutely. All right, folks, on that note, we close the book on BOA Audio Season 8. Wow, what a week. What a crazy week of just tremendous shows. Uh, Adam Davies, Laurie Simmons, Tuesday night, David Polides tonight, just just tremendous stuff and uh, I can't thank all three folks enough for coming on the show here. If you are a newcomer to BOA Audio, well you're going to be sad because uh, we're going to be taking a little hiatus here, but we are Banal of America and you can find out more from us at banalofamerica.com B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com You can also find us on Facebook, just punch in Banal of America. That'll bring up the website for BOA. What you just listened to was an hour-long interview with David Polides, which followed a two-hour and 45-minute conversation with Adam Davies and Lori Simmons from two nights ago. So in total, nearly four hours of audio as we close out Season 8. In addition to that, this was Episode 835, which means it was the 35th show this season. All totally free all still free and available for the BOA Audio listeners. And, of course, the entire archive is still free. How do we do that, folks? How do we make that possible? There's so many shows out there that are charging you money to listen to them. We are not one of them. And we managed to do that thanks to the BOA listeners, the folks who I call at the end of the show the fuel that drive the BOA mothership and their donations to the entire BOA franchise. Since we're closing the book on Season 8, we started this way back in the beginning of October 2013. Here it is, October 30th, 2014. 14 months we've been producing shows here for you, 35 episodes. Now's the time where I really push you hard and ask you to make a donation. If, you'd enjoy, if you have enjoyed these programs over the last 14 months, now is the time to help us out. Help us get into the black and build a little foundation to kick off Season 9 how do you do that? That's simple. There are two ways to donate to BOA. Head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the Internet and you want to make a snail mail donation, you can definitely do that. Fire off your donation to the P.O. Box address, which can be found at Banal of America. And as we say when we call for donations, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. As you may have surmised from the endless times I've said it, tonight constitutes the season finale episode of BOA Audio Season 8, coupled with the Adam Davies-Laurie Simmons episode from a couple of nights ago. This has been quite the season, folks. It really has been amazing. I was looking over it uh, earlier today. I'm scrolling through it right now just to take a quick look. We had Jim Mars on at the beginning of the season, October 3rd, 2013, talking our occulted history, and that kicked off the journey this year. And I promised on the season premiere that this would be a season of BOA audio unlike any other. And I definitely think that's the case because somewhere along the line we sort of melded and 
morphed into this live program that we've become ever since the spring. I don't think I've done a taped show since April or May at this point. And the journey this year, Skeptics with Sharon Hill, UFO Jam Session with Peter Robbins, The War of the Worlds radio broadcast with David Accord, The Flatwoods Monster with Frank Pacino, After Death Communication, Jeff Ritzman joined us with a UFO Jam Session again, Rucks Giving, Tracy Twyman talking about Baphomet, Mickey Moran with the Elvis Presley Death Hoax. How about that episode, folks? That was a barn burner. Of course, the holiday special with Stan Friedman, the year in review with Greg Bishop, the big return from our winter hiatus with Brad Steiger and Nick Redfern. The list goes on and on. I just want to throw out the thanks to all these folks. Eric Altman talking about Bigfoot, Gian Cassar talking about Jack the Ripper, Adam Davies talking about his various expeditions, Aaron Gullius talking about the Chaos Conundrum, Rojan and Lobo from Project Archivist, Albert Rosales with the Humanoid Encounters. That was an absolutely chilling episode. The Baseball Special. Then we had Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman talking about the grid and viral mythology. Love those guys. Can't wait to talk to them in Season 9. Lon Strickler and Butch Witkowski talking about the Todd Seas case. Paul Davids with Life After Death Project. Melinda Leslie dealing with My Labs. Dr. Tyler Cokejohn with a science jam session that was really creepy. Rich Dolan joined us to return and talk about UFOs. Adam Gorelli talked about the origins of the Discordian Society. Kendall Carver gave us an update on cruise victims. Richard Surratt talked about his conspiracy show. The legend Lauren Coleman touched base with us on the Twilight language and cryptozoology. And uh, these are starting to become more familiar, I think, folks. Tony Ortega talked about Scientology. Chris O'Brien talked about cattle mutilations. Brian Tui with sports conspiracies. Adam Davies and Lori Simmons the other night talking about the Brian Sykes expedition. And tonight, David Polides missing 411. What a breadth of programs, folks. What a variety of topics we've covered this season. And i got to say, this year has been probably the most fun I've had doing this show in quite some time. So for anybody out there that's like, oh, no, how's he going to keep doing this? Benal's getting burned out. Benal doesn't want to do this anymore. Benal's going to wrap it up someday. Folks, I have had an absolute blast this year. It has been so much fun, and I'm really, I'm really excited about getting going again with season nine. I'm so excited, and it's funny. I was looking at my schedule. I had a couple of days off in a couple of weeks, and I was like, instinctively already thinking about what show I should do. And I'm like, no, 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 you got to take this break, man. You got to stop for a couple months and catch your breath and really put things together and take care of the stuff that I always want to do when I'm not doing the show, because sometimes it might be three weeks between episodes, but I'm in the midst of a whole bunch of stuff surrounding the program. So I'm going to take a couple months to relax. BOA Audio Season 9 is going to kick off in January 2015. It's going to be awesome. I've already got a lot of stuff in the works for that, and I've got a lot of plans for Season 9. As I said, I've had so much fun this year that I'm really excited about doing more shows. So Season 9 is going to be awesome. I am already certain of that. And we're going to get into all kinds of nooks and crannies and side roads and tangents of the supernatural and the paranormal and the esoteric and the parapolitical and the pop cultural and all the strange periphery stories that we deal with here on BOA Audio. Now, before I let you go, I'm saying I'm going to come back in January and let that leave some scary Months ahead, November, December, you know what that means. 
I'm not entirely going away because we've got the two holiday specials that we do every year, and you know I'm not going to miss the one in December, folks. Rucks Giving, that's going to be coming at you around Thanksgiving in November. I can't give you a date. What are you talking about? I don't even know what's going on yet. Tomorrow's Halloween. But sometime in November, right around Thanksgiving, it's our annual visit from Bruce Rucks. Questions from the audience, I'm sure. Given how much free time I'm going to have in a few weeks, maybe I'll get a chance to finally read Architects of the Underworld. I would love to finally dig into that book and devote some time talking about it in depth with Bruce. Maybe that will be this year's Ruxgiving. I don't even know yet, but there will be a Ruxgiving, provided, of course, we can get in touch with Bruce and get things rolling, but it's never been a problem before, so I expect that will be coming at you right around Thanksgiving. And then, the big one, folks, the 10th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. Much like with Bruce, if we can wrap it up, get Stan in here on the show, which hasn't been a problem the last nine years, and Believe me, I have a feeling he doesn't want to miss the 10th annual holiday special either. We'll be coming at you right around Christmas time. Ten years. Talk about wild stuff. Ten years of holiday specials will culminate this December with Stanton Friedman on BOA Audio. It is going to be a celebration. As you know, I like to go all out for these sort of things, and I really like to uh, go wild when it comes to these anniversaries, celebrations, and holidays, and they're all going to come together with the 10th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. That will be coming at you around Christmas time in December. So you're going to get two episodes from me until the new year. Rucks giving in November, the 10th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman in December, and then in January, BOA Audio Season 9 kicks off, hopefully with Jim Mars, as I said, every year. I don't like to promise these guests, but they manage to come back every year, so hopefully we'll kick it off with Jim Mars, and then God knows where we're going to go next. I have all kinds of crazy ideas and areas I want to explore in Season 9. So strap yourself in, folks. It's going to be another awesome ride. With all that said, enormous thanks to all the guests who appeared on the program this season. Thank you so much, folks. Tremendous thanks to the people who have been supporting us for so long. The BOA Hardcore fans, we close out another season, man. Eight years. Unbelievable. I'm getting choked up thinking about it. Eight years of this program. It's absolutely mind-boggling that we're still rolling. And as I said, I had so much fun this year. I cannot wait to get back on the airwaves for all you folks out there. Thank you so much for your enduring support of this program. There have been... Good times, there have been bad times, there have been up times, there have been down times, there have been times when I throw a whole bunch of episodes at you right away, there have been times when you got to wait three weeks between shows. That's just the nature of it all of America. We are grassroots. This is the program by Esoteric Radio listeners, for the Esoteric Radio listeners. Thank you for your enduring support of this program, folks. Until Rucks Giving, this is Tim Benall. Thank you for listening.